Welcome to What It Takes. Today we have Jeff Whiting and what it takes to be an MC. Hello Jeff. Hi, hello. As an introduction to an MC, could you just clarify what an MC actually is? The MC is the person that holds the show together. You're required to come out first, then do varying amounts of time. This could be 10 minutes, could be 15 minutes, could be 12 minutes. And your job really is to, well, we'll come to this, but it, in my opinion, it's to get the audience in the right mood, get to know a bit about the audience, sometimes impart factual information, which sometimes you're asked to do by the club. So you're asked to tell them that, you know, there's a break after an hour or you're asked to tell them about, you know, sometimes you have to do admin, but you have to hold the show together. So although you can do material, and you can tell gags, that's not the main part of it. But you can do some of that within comparing if you want to. Some compares tend to do no material. Some do quite a lot of material as part of the comparing MC job. But that's basically what the MC does. And then you come on and off, obviously, between the acts all evening. So the other aspect of it is that you're there all night, coming on and off stage for the whole show, whereas acts come and go, uh, sometimes literally come and go if they're going to another show. How did you actually, on your journey, how did you become an MC? Uh, by mistake, really. But I mean, I liked it but, uh, because I had a, a small club in Plymouth that asked me to go down and do their first ever show just to do 15 minutes as a comic. And I didn't realise at the time and they invited me, but it was their opening night. So they were putting on a mixture of people on the same evening. They didn't have an MC, but they just had duo singing. They had me doing 15 minutes stand up and I think they had maybe even a magician. They had about four different acts. And what they were doing was seeing how people reacted with the idea being that if they reacted well to certain aspects of it, they'd do more of it. And the comedy element that I did went well. So he said to me, we'd like to make this a weekly event. But what he didn't realise was that when you're new, which I was, I'd be going about six months, you haven't got more than 15 minutes. So he said, can you come back next week and, and come every week? I said, no, because I'll be doing the same material. And he's like, well, he said, could you bring someone with you next week? And then you could go on first and introduce them. And that's how I started, really. The next week, I asked someone else to go. And I went on and did 10 minutes and then introduced them. And then he said to me, can you come and do this every week? I said, well, as long as you could pay me something, yeah. <laughs> so I became the compet almost at the beginning of my career when I was still not even being paid to do sets at a lot of clubs. Did, did you have any compare mentor? No, I didn't. I, di I didn't, no, because I, I hadn't seen much stand-up before I started. I played music for a living and for about 15 years. And I'll be honest, I'd only ever been to one stand-up gig in my life before I started. I went to the comedy store only about two years before I started, for somebody's birthday, and saw a show at the comedy store. Actually, twice. I've been to the Bearcat with a friend as well. So I'd seen two comedy shows. The Bearcat don't run. Well, they do now. They didn't run with a compare. In fact, I don't even know if they do now. But anyway, the Bearcat didn't have a compare. They used to run without one, which is interesting because then we're talking about comparing. So then the Banana and Ballon, the Bedford, run without a compare. Just an offstage voice of God announcement saying, ladies and gentlemen, your first act is whoever, and no compare. So, uh, but they go back to about 86, 87, and it seems that they were quite happy to run without compares. Then at some rooms, obviously lots of people did have compares but getting to the point I had been to the comedy store so I saw a compare I can't even remember who it was and then in the Bearcat I went to there wasn't even a compare on the show so I wasn't influenced by anybody no I mean I just did what I do which is chatting to people and did some of the material I had and so, I just started and learned while I was doing the job. In, in the old days the compare wasn't actually on stage it was off stage almost like if you go back to the old days of the, the wheel tappers 
the little bell yes. off stage, out of sight, out of mind, yeah. introduce the acts, or actually... And as I said, you know, a couple of the clubs in the mid-80s ran without compares. I mean, big clubs, I mean, Banana and Bearcat, big clubs, you know, a big reputation, you know, all the top acts played and didn't run with compares. But then the Comedy Store had Alexi Sale, very early in the 80s, who was a fixture, I think, to a degree. And after that, Bob Mills, who was resident there for about 10 years. So the Comedy Store had a tradition of having a compare from the day one, whereas some other London clubs that had a very good name and had the same acts playing didn't use a compare. They used an offstage voice. Mm -hmm. But as I say, by the time I started Plymouth, which is 97, most clubs were running with compares. It was unusual not to. So, But I became a sort of de facto compare by the fact that I was somebody who was willing to go every week and do my 10 minutes and introduce the act and the first time it was just me and one act and then eventually increased the budget and said can you bring two acts so then I'd compare and introduce an act have a break and then introduce a second act so I developed as a compare as the shows developed the whole thing developed together and then I got a second club in about the beginning of 1998 so naturally I compared it because I started comparing so it's even obvious to me that well it's my club I'm booking the acts I'll compare and then the third club came along which is in Bath and I did the same so I sort of became a compare by mistake almost yeah. really. so as you evolved as a comedian so you evolved as a compare but MC now from this so yes. as you've developed what is the actual role of an MC well as I said it's it's definitely it's really you've got to pull the show together I mean when the other acts are watching so well, they usually are, not all of them, but I mean, often they are watching it from the back. Or even if some rooms, if they're in the dressing room, they can see the stage. So at the comedy store, there's a monitor. So they can see what you're doing. They're either backstage watching a monitor and they can hear it, or they're in the back at the back of the room. So part of your job is to find out about the audience because those comics want to use that. They want to trade on that because comics have pieces in the of material where they're looking for things. So somebody that met on internet dating, they might be looking for that. Somebody, uh, a couple have been together 50 years or a couple have been together only two weeks, they might be looking for that. Someone with an unusual job, you know, whatever. So they're, they're, they have things that they would quite happily refer to. And if you're the compare and you can dig people out and dig information out, it helps the other acts because you're doing it for your own benefit, of course, to riff by saying, what do you do for a living? And then when they tell you, you're trying to riff with it, get jokes and laughs off by ad-libbing on what they've told you. But also the other comics benefit from the compare and the compare has a role of a duty almost of finding it a bit out about the audience. Where are they from? Anybody from overseas, certain things. So the comics at the back are thinking, right, I now know there's someone from Australia or I now know there's someone from... And then they've got a routine where they think, yeah, I can use that because I've got a routine about Australia, I'll go to that guy. Mm -hmm. So it helps them when they get on, if you've done a good job finding out about the crowd and also getting the crowd to know about each other is an important role which a compare has because you need to create a sort of group feeling amongst people. So if you can, ideally, it doesn't work every time, but you try to. So the idea is that eventually the audience start to know each other. So you try to bring it all together because you're asking questions where they're all finding out about themselves. So they're beginning to think, oh, we're an audience, you know, we've got one guy does this for a living, one guy does that for a living, you know, we've got this couple, that couple, we've got, you know, every, a mixture of people in and we know who's who's what and who's who. And they start to feel part of it. So you're trying to bond the audience as a group and you're also trying to help the acts and the other comics before they come on and have an idea of what sort of crowd they're talking to by finding out as much as you can 
for your own benefit to get your own laughs, but also it helps the other comics to refer back to things you've said, well, not that you've said, that you've found out by talking to people. It helps the other comics. So the better you are as an MC, the better the show will be. Yes, it's not just knowing the audience and knowing the comedians. You are the link between the audience and the comedians. Yeah, to a degree, yes. Obviously, a lot of the comics have their own skills. You know, a lot of the comics uh, have their own skills, ad-libbing, riffing. A lot of the, some of the comics on the bill will have compared other gigs themselves. So, you know, it's not as if they couldn't manage or cope, but it ha helps them. They can dig out their own information if they need to, but it would certainly help them. If you've had a bit of banter with, a, you know, say a couple are in and one's English, one's South African, and he's, where did you meet? And something comes of that conversation that's funny. Another comic will call back to it when they come on because they know that if they call back to it, they can probably get something from it. So often that is the case, and that's often the way it works. And so you can certainly help. Yeah, I am sort of the link between the, the comedians and the audience. But as I say, of course, they link directly. They connect directly when they're on stage. But it does help, yes. There's a sort yes. of... So, so you're, the role of an MC is not to be as... I use it like a, It's not a scene stealer, but it's a scene setter no. between yeah. each act and to enable each act to perform as an individual. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and to be fair, it's diff it's not always perfect. Sometimes as a as an MC, depending on your style, but if you're an interactive sort of compare, which mainly the job is interactive, most compares have to address the audience and speak to them, but some do it more than others. If you're particularly interactive, which I am, and you riff a lot, which I do, occasionally I've got it wrong because sometimes you you get on a, and you get onto something with someone in the audience that's working and you take it up a couple of notches and to some extent, maybe the energy gets too high because ideally you should keep the energy uh, down a little bit before the first act. I mean, you shouldn't have a massive burst of energy and a massive amount of noise and activity in the audience going on just before you introduce the first act. But occasionally it happens, but not, not intentionally. Occasionally, if you're on the time limit and you happen to get going on a bit of riffing and they're all laughing and they even might applaud and then the first act's brought on. Sometimes the act may think, well, that's tricky for me because there's been a bit of a peak and, you know, automatically you'll drop a touch when I come on because I'm a different person and it will drop. So your job as a compare is to try, if you can remember to, which normally is possible as long as you don't get carried away, to drop it down a bit. Even if you get some applause or some laughs or some shouting or clap, to try and then bring it down a bit before you get the first act or any act on it so that the level's a bit lower before you bring them on. But that's something I don't always get right. I mean, I know that because I am a riffer, sometimes I get a bit carried away with the riffing and get a bit you know, involved with the audience and perhaps the energy goes up a bit and sometimes I have to get the act on quite quickly. And uh, so it's not perfect, even though I've done it for a long time, it's hard, but I try to do it, I'm aware of it, but, but it's not something I think any compare gets right 100%, but I try to, that's the aim. Yeah, you're actually managing the audience expectation Yes, and, and, and the other thing as a compare is that you set the tone for the gig, which means that my type of comparing is that I always tell the audience that they're a good audience. That's my personal approach. Not all compares do that. And that means that even if the audience aren't necessarily a great audience, I tell them they are a good audience because I find psychologically that if you keep telling people they're a good audience, they tend to become a good audience. Conversely, if you tell them they're a bad audience, which they might be, they get worse and worse. So, 
so my school of thinking is, I, I, to a degree, of course, not if somebody's shouting abuse or jumping about on their chair. Clearly, that's not a good audience or a good audience member. But as far as I can get away with it, I tend to tell them they're nice. Whatever's happening, I tend to say, you're a good crowd, you're a good audience, this is going to be a good show. Even if actually looking at them, I'm thinking they looks like this could be a tough audience. I still tell them. When, when you have a sort of positive audience. reinforcement, so to speak, you know. So, so when you actually have a tough audience, in order to manage a tough audience, do you work your way round the room? And yeah, I mean, there's two types of tough audience, really. One is the very quiet audience that won't answer any questions. And the other end of the scale is the audience that are jumping around shouting and, and talking. So you get the two ends. The, 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 in the middle is what everybody wants. So the two ends of the scale, are, they're the difficult ones. If, if the audience are too quiet, then you tend to, well, in my case, I would go back to a couple of gags. So if you're chatting to an audience, they're not responding much. I would put some gags in to try and get some laughs off what I think are strong gags to just break the silence and get some laughs and some activity, but then go back into them again. And you just have to try and find one and you just have to break them down like that. Try and find one person that will get involved or one couple will get involved. And once you, crack one couple it starts to ripple around the group gradually and you can start to loosen them up but so that's how i approach a, a quiet audience is to go back to some material then go back to them with a with a loud audience that are talking too much the old secret of stand-up which applies to stand-up in general is actually talk more quietly because they have to go they have to become quiet to hear what you're saying it's it's something they teach i mean i say they teach you i didn't ever go on a comedy course but but I've run some since then with other people that also run courses. And I've, so I've run some and I've worked with people that specialise in running courses and, you know, giving advice to comics. And they always say, if the audience are talking, speak more quietly, because actually at first they may ignore that and just keep talking. But after a minute or so, they will, if you just keep talking, so you don't stand there and say nothing, you just keep talking, they will start to think, what is he actually saying? And they have to come down in volume to hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And also if your body language is very relaxed, a lot of comedy is body language. So if an audience are talking uh, across you or there's background noise or somebody's just shouting, get me a drink. If you've got a very relaxed um, body language, which is very much, it's actually physical. If you, if you, if your microphone is in a stand or otherwise, but anyway, but if you stand with this body language with your arms out, what you're really saying is I've got this. And I actually use that as a phrase as a compare, because what happens is if say you've got, 10 people talking in an audience of 100. The 90 people don't want it either. So they look to you and in their mind, subconsciously, they're thinking, please stop those people talking because we don't want to hear people talking, we want to hear the acts. So 90% of the audience, 90 out of 100 want you. And I actually use the phrase because it's not, you can't spell into arrogance. It's just relaxed confidence. You have to be, it's very important not to be arrogant. That's the worst thing you can do. But relaxed confidence. So sometimes if an audience are in front of me and there's a small group talking, I will actually say to the audience, don't worry guys, I've got this, leave it to me. And then I talk to them after I've said that and actually imparts a sort of, it, it, the audience gain confidence in you and they think, yeah, he has got this. And the people that are talking also think he does seem relaxed. I think he might have this. And then you deal with them, deconstruct what they're saying, and if you're sharper witted than they are, which is your job to be, you quiet them down. It's, but you, it I often use it as a thing. I say to the audience, don't worry, guys, I've got this. I'll talk I, to them. We'll sort this out. 
Yes. And, and that body language and that attitude makes them think, oh, good, because they want someone in control. They don't want a compare. They think can't deal with the crowd because that goes in reverse mode. They think the compare can't cope. He doesn't know what to do or she doesn't want to do or they don't know what to do. And it's all going downhill. You have to impart confidence, whatever you're thinking in your own head. Of course, you might be thinking this looks difficult, but you don't give that away at any point. This applies to stand up as well as compare, of course. I've, I've seen you in action and it, it was a joy to behold it was Thanks a masterclass bringing well, someone bringing someone who was quietly chatting and bringing them to be involved to you without actually doing yeah. anything it yeah it was as i said it was a joy to watch that 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 particular oh thanks very much i do appreciate it I mean, um, but, but that is a technique everybody would use, you know, if someone's chatting, involve them, you know, also, you have to be able and willing to spot those people because sometimes they're sitting further back and rude them out. You can't leave, understandably, if comics are new, new comics, other, you know, open spots or even very new compares, occasionally will deliberately ignore a couple of people talking because they think, well, if I tackle them and it goes wrong it could be disastrous so they leave them in there but when you've been going a long time as i have you never do that if you see a couple of guys or a couple of women or anybody talking it doesn't matter if they're eight rows but you can see them and you can hear a little bit of you i immediately will say things guys who are you guys you two guys who are you and just engage them and they have to stop talking to each other because they can realize you're talking to them but they have to engage and usually once you've done a bit with them they quiet them down they won't go back to chatting not always but if you have to go back twice, whatever. But that's the sort of way we work. Yeah, yeah. all compares. As, sort of. as as a, as you work as a team with with you, let's say as the captain of that team for the night. So mm. you actually make sure you're watching the acts and watching the audience. Yeah, yeah. And I try to watch all the acts. Uh, I don't always get to see every second of every act because I'm coming on and off. Sometimes I get distracted. I have to take a phone call, or check a text, or whatever. But I see most of what all the other acts do during the evening. Nearly all of it, every show, which in its own right is is quite a privileged position because I get to see some very good people. You know, I mean, sometimes yeah. I'm on with some exceptionally good acts and I get to see them working and other people are paying 20 pounds to see them. And I'm, I'm, I'm there to compare and I see them and see what they're doing and, and get a chance to have a chat with them. So it's great. It's quite a privilege to do that, but you are. Yeah. I mean, the way I see stand up in general is it's a team effort to me, the atmosphere in a dressing room of a stand up gig should be a little bit like the atmosphere in a football dressing room, perhaps a little bit less testosterone, but basically you are a team. You know, the best gigs ever are if there are four or five acts on a show, and there can be as many as five in some rooms. If you would come off and everyone has done well, and at the end you all come off and you all go to the dressing room or you go to the bar for a drink, you say, we've done it. We've done it. That's the expression you want five of us, or five in a compare, five or six of us. We've done it. That's me and the acts. We've done it. That's what you want. You, need, you want a team effort. You want the acts helping each other, the acts, the opening act doing something which will actually help this following act. The same as the same way that I'm doing something will help the acts. The opening act might be doing something they're set with another act can come back to. Uh, a third act might refer to something the first act say. They might call back to something the first act said because they saw them and they mentioned them by name. They say, oh, Alan said this or Dave said that so but it's nice because it gives the not the impression because it's the truth but it makes the audience aware the comics know each other and they're a sort of team of people that get on as friends so if the third act says oh Alan was on first and he was talking about Scotland you know people think oh they're obviously friends it's sub you're subconsciously laying it in people the back of people's minds these are a group of people that all get on and that are all working together and all entertain us as a group and they all know each other so much so that frequently when you're the compare you get approached 
frequently I get approached by people saying, when is your next show? And I think, well, I'm only the compare. And they say, no, I don't mean you personally, I mean all of you. And I say, what do you mean? So, well, what's your next tour date? I said, we're not on a tour. And they say, oh, sorry, I thought you five guys were touring the country. I said, no, we're just together tonight. Tomorrow I'll be with four other people. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, sorry, I thought the five of you were a touring group of comedians. But that's because we've done the job right. Mm-hmm. It's because we have implanted that subconscious idea that we're a group of people that are tight-knit and get on together and working as a team to make a, a great night of comedy. But that's because we've done it right that they think we're actually touring together. They think that's how well we know each other yeah. because we, we've played it that way. And that's how I think comedy shows should be played by comics and compares. It's a skill you've spent many years developing and, and honing and only through practice and actually getting out there and doing it and watching others. Can, can you really get to that level? Yeah. And, and that really brings it on to the value of an MC. Well, to me, it's a very important job. And there are people that have undoubtedly got a skill for it. I mean, male and female, different ages, different from all, all backgrounds. I mean, there are there are natural. I mean, uh, most people, if they applied themselves, I'm sure if they're a good stand-up, could could compare a show. But some of them just don't have any uh, desire to do that. I mean, Jimmy Carl never. Ironically, Jimmy Carl never compared a show ever, and then became a TV host. Yet never compared. I mean, and when I say that, I mean in the sense that if you booked him, which I did regularly when in the 1999-2000, over a two or three year period when I, I booked him for clubs, he made it clear, I'm not interested in the comparing spots. Don't offer me those. I don't do comparing. Yet became a TV host. Whereas Graham Norton, who compared all the time, did become a TV host. And he used to host all the time. He was a specialist compare. And then he did become a TV host. So it, it, you can't tell necessarily by what the comic's doing now what their background is. So Jimmy wasn't a, a compare and, and Graham Norton was. But, so, but as I said, I'd say that the, yeah, it, I think it's a very important skill. But I also think you've got to give some people a chance to do their first ever comparing job. Because it's, it's, you can't make an omelette without breaking the eggs. It's, it, you know, I couldn't, if I hadn't been given that opportunity in Plymouth, admittedly, you know, he was looking for someone and I was not expensive because I was new, but he gave me the chance to go and do 10 minutes, introduce somebody. And I'd never done it in my life. And he put his confidence in me and said, fine, do that. And if you think you can do it, let's do it. And that got me off the ground. So I have given quite a lot of people their first ever comparing jobs. And one could argue that's risky because you could say, well, if it doesn't come off, you might be risking the quality of the show because as you've just said, the compare is vital. But I'm fairly confident about 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I've got it right. When I've put someone in to compare for the first time, they have worked and they haven't been perfect, but they've shown the aptitude and the show's gone well and they've shown they've got the basics there and then they've developed their comparing skills and gone on to specialise. So I think, you know, as a booker, which I am, I do have to give people an opportunity to, to compare, especially some of them request it by name and say, I'd love to compare, Jeff. You know, I've done stand-up for three years or four years. I've never compared a show would you give me an opportunity to, to compare a, even a small room to start with? And I'll say, yeah, within reason, as long as I know what they do and I think they can do it. But it is an important role. So you can't be too uh, cavalier about who you put in. You know, you should be looking for a certain quality. But I think we've got good quality control in what I do at Mirth Control. I think we've got a decent quality control on on who, who the compares are. And we know the good ones. I mean, I could give you a list of 20 very good compares. I mean, we know who they are because they do well if I'm uh, sometimes I do a set sometimes I'm on a show doing a set somebody else compares a show so I see them either in one of our own clubs or I go and do other people's rooms where I'm not the compare and I'm doing a set so I do see compares and work with them and there's uh, there are some very good compares about very good um, some very good female compares but also very good compares of all as I said all ages and 
all backgrounds and all ethnicities. There's some very strong compares about. And, and, and which do you prefer as a stand-up comedian, a comedian or an MC? No, MCing definitely. I prefer it by a long way. Yeah, I'm just a natural compare. It's what I like doing more is what I'm better at. I can do a set and I've done sets, you know, to be fair, I've closed shows uh, doing 40 minutes and done well enough. You know, the promoter was happy and I've opened shows doing 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I've done a 20 minute set at the comedy store. I've done sets at most clubs, but I really love compare. I mean, there's no doubt. I, I believe that I'm a lot better as a compare. And I think other comics that know me, even who, who rate me as a compare would, would agree I'm better as a compare. They wouldn't, they wouldn't suggest I couldn't do a set, but I think they, they, however nice they are being about me, would still say, yeah, if I had to choose, I'd get Jeff to be the compare because I think he's better at that and somebody else is better at doing a set. So it makes sense that he's the MC. And so I do think it's it's just naturally what I like doing and I enjoy it. And I think people who, who are looking for people to work in their rooms would probably use me more as a compare. I'm comparing Backyard this weekend. You know, and backyard, you know, don't book me as an act. They book me as an MC. I've MC'd Top Secret, but they don't book me as an act. They book me as a compare. I'm comparing the boat show at the Tattershall Castle, but they don't book me as an act. They book me as a compare. Yeah. So, of course, I am one of the acts because the compare is one of the acts and gets paid the same money and everything else. But yeah. so, yeah, I'm a professional comedian. But but what I mean is all those clubs, and I could go on, Covent Garden Comedy Club in London, again, only ever compare. Probably six or seven of the best clubs in London, I compare regularly, but never do a setting because they think I'm better as a compare and so do I. So mm -hmm. if it isn't broke, don't fix it. It is. So what, what, would your, um, what would your top three do's and don'ts be? For an MC, do's and don'ts. Well, the do's. Well, I mean the do's and don'ts. But I would say the do's are some of the things I've already covered. So the do's would be get to know the audience. Don't just talk at them, not as an MC, because obviously an MC has to get to know the audience, in my view. So I think the do is do get to know the audience. Do talk to them to at least a degree and find something out. Do get laughs from the interaction with the audience because. There's no point asking an audience member what you do and they say, I'm a plumber, and then you have no follow-up. I mean, that's dead air time. So you have to be a, you have to be in that mindset of riffing. So they say a plumber, you've got to think, right, what can I do with that? And then come back with something, even if it's not hilarious, but something to keep the conversation going so they'll reply. So there's no point asking questions unless you're prepared to riff. So don't ask audience the audience questions if you aren't prepared mentally or whatever to, to riff because that's the whole point of asking the question and do make people feel welcome and make them feel relaxed because actually the audience are, are as tense as the comedians in some ways not tense but if something goes wrong at a gig the audience get tense because it's the atmosphere is tense for them so if if you are the compare and the act before you has a row with somebody which can happen because it can happen to any comic if something goes wrong. So if the act before you that you're about to come back on after tells someone where to go and, you know, that act that that punter walks out or there's a big commotion, when you come on after them, you've got to get the audience back, relax and reassure them because it's tense for them because they don't like the atmosphere and it's all tense for everyone. So your job is to make them feel relaxed. So say, OK, guys, everything's fine. That's all been sorted out. We're going to have an interval. We've got great acts coming up later. Everything's good. Are you? And then talk to a couple of people. Are you okay? Everybody all right? And you just reassure them. So to reassure the audience and to make the audience feel relaxed 
is a big part of being the conquer. So do that. But the don'ts is don't lecture the audience and don't patronise the audience. Don't talk down to the audience. Don't patronise them and don't lecture them. Don't say, if anybody's phone goes off, I'll be straight over there, completely out of order. There's another way of putting that. You can get a reference to turning the phone off in without making it a command or a lecture. You can say, guys, you know, when we get the show started, don't forget, I know you're all on Tinder. You know, you could just make it into a gag. You're probably all on Tinder or you're probably all on, you know, whatever data, but turn the, turn the phone off, will you? you know, at least turn the volume off, will you? We don't want phones going off. But you can have a chat about it. But don't just walk on and say, right, well, you've got to turn all your phones off. Right? If your phones go off, there'll be a problem. Do you know what I mean? You don't lecture people and talk down to them or patronise them. Um, don't ask questions, as I said just now, if you aren't able to respond. So don't just ask questions, you know, where do you live? And then you do nothing with it. You know, I live in Cardiff. And then you just say, OK. And then you ask the next person, where do you live? You think, well, you asked a question, there was an answer. Nothing funny happened. There's no point asking the questions. Don't get pieces of paper out to check the name of the act you're about to introduce. It's not difficult to remember one name at a time. It's not difficult. The only time that you possibly might ever do that is if you're introducing 15 acts on five minute spots, or you're introducing 12 acts in a new act competition. Occasionally, you might think, I don't want to get a name wrong, and I'm now introducing the sixth act in a row. I better just check this. But otherwise, in a normal club show, you've only got to remember the names of four acts. And you're only introducing one at a time and you've got time while they're on to look at the name of the next act. There is no excuse for getting bits of paper out because what it does is it breaks that bonding thing I was talking about where the audience think you're a group of people who get on well and know each other. That is broken immediately. If you get a piece of paper out and say the next act is and you get a piece of paper out and read their name out, it's quite obvious you've never met them, don't know them and have no idea what they're even about to do. It, where it's it, it gives it's that away. Factor. Yeah, it gives it away. So what you should do is not do that. Just remember the name of the act. You don't have to say anything about them if you've never seen them before. Just say the next act is whoever and then say their name. Let's give some applause to the next act. Because if you get pieces of paper out, it, as I said, it, 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 it blows, the, it blows the, the illusion that you're all close friends and you all work together and you're all you know, a team because that makes the show go better. The more, the more they think there's a camaraderie a camaraderie between the acts the more they tend to buy into the show and the more obvious it is you don't know each other the less now i know that that goes counter to a lot of well-known compares malcolm hardy traded off the facts but you see to be fair he made it a, a trait he traded off the fact he'd say next act never heard of him could be shit uh, and then he would get a bit of paper out but that's because he was but that was a completely intentional trait that he had week in week out so that's not the same as an error because that was how he wanted to do it and it became his trademark they'd always say because i went and did my first five and ten minutes there and he introduced me some bloke from bath never heard of him he could be shit oh yeah it's jeff white and and but that was as i said deliberate so the point is that unless it's a very deliberate trait or part of some stylistic approach if you're trying to compare in the regular sense and get a room on side, remember the names of the acts and don't write them down and read them out on bits of paper, in my opinion. I, I wouldn't do that. That's just my own take. Yeah. Um, this is um, just my personal take. I mean, as I said, one, one of the things for me is I've, I, I was at a, a comedy club where just before the compare came out, we had the five minute announcement. Everyone just came in to sit down and uh, the group on the front row, there was four people. Everyone was in, they, they turned up just a fraction bit late as the MC was coming out. 
and each of them had a, a Sainsbury's sandwich bag with them. It was a Sainsbury's sandwich bag and a drink and an umbrella. And the, the first thing the, the, the MC said was welcome to everyone and he ignored this and everyone was on board and engaged. And he, he just said politely, he said, what's, what's in your bag? It was really done politely and very nicely, no, no, no bad meaning behind it. And he said, oh no, we've, we've got our sandwiches, a flask. Oh yes, I heard about this. Yes. And an umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Tell you what, it yeah, took I mean... five minutes for everyone to settle down. But, yes. but thinking about it, he didn't say anything anymore. The, yeah. it, he just, the MC let the energy just, as you said earlier, yeah. calm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but it is interesting. I mean, you know, things, I mean, as a compare, you're sort of, ex well, not necessarily exposed, but you're, you're, for example, if something happens while an act is on stage, sometimes you're required to go back on unexpectedly. That can happen. I did a gig once at John Gleur's in Reading where the headline act had a, you know, had a bit of a set to with a member of the audience, well, a group of guys. And he was doing 30 minutes. And when you're the compare, you're, you, you work on the basis that you know roughly, you know, you're told the timings. So technically, I could have been outside making a phone call, I could have been having a coffee in the dressing room, but as it happened, I'd stayed by the stage. And he came off after two minutes. He had a row with this guy and then the whole group. And there was a lot of kerfuffle. And then he just said, forget the money or whatever, some expression such as, because obviously a, a comic knows they wouldn't be paid if they come off two minutes. And he said, uh, forget the money. No amount of money's worth this. Uh, good night. And I, I was there and I came straight on. But I played it with a straight back. That's the other thing. If something like that happens, as a compare, in my opinion, don't address it. Play it with a straight back. Because there's only two ways you can go. Either you have to criticise the comic or you have to criticise the audience. If you don't want to do either, you just say, thanks very much. That's the end of the show. There's now going to be a disco. Good night. Which is what I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that... And that's that's really, as you said, that's managing the event. Yeah, and, and I was required to come on, as I said, but and I didn't appreciate, I didn't at the time, that that would be what was going to happen. Yeah. But I mean, I've compared a new disc gig where all the audience were naked. I was allowed to be clothed, but the headline act came on naked because they said one of the acts needs to come on naked. And uh, Dave Thompson said, OK, I'll go on naked. And Dave Thompson's a great guy. And uh, he's just a brilliant character. And Dave is the sort of guy that, does the gigs most people won't do. Uh, in terms of anything unusual, different, uh, he did one for me where he had to pretend to be a vicar and do half an hour of a wedding service in front of the guests that didn't know he wasn't the real vicar and make a complete mess of it all and get all the names wrong, knock things over. And nobody knew apart from the bride and groom and their parents that he was a comedian. All the audience thought he was a real vicar. And then they had to reveal that was the case. And then a real vicar came out and did the ceremony. Dave took that. Most comics didn't want to do it. Same thing with this. I said, I need a headline act to come out naked. Dave said, I'll do it. So I had my clothes on, so did the other acts. But Dave came out naked to do the closing set in front of a naked audience. So I've comped in front of a naked audience, which is an unusual challenge. I've done everything. I comped in another show where two members, all the members, audience members were arrested while the show was going on and visibly arrested because the fire doors were pushed open as they fell down these stairs fighting. Fire doors were... were pushed open, uh, the, somebody had called the police, a police car pulled up in view of the whole audience and the police arrested them, handcuffed them and put them in the car in view of the audience. The, they were driven off, the doors were closed and Alan Francis came back on. 
who was the act that had been on at the time and uh, came back on and finished the show. So uh, as a compere, you see quite a lot of things. And I did a gig in Bath where somebody appeared on the stage with Daniel Kitson while he was in the middle of an Edinburgh preview because the stage, it was a basement bar, but actually the pub was above pavement height. So actually, well, that was a basement bar. It was level with a low pavement outside and it was very hot in July and he was doing an Edinburgh preview and two people, a couple who were walking past, had heard noise and they'd opened the fire exit, which is normally closed, so you can't get in because it was so hot. And if you went go through that fire exit and walk another four feet ahead through a velvet curtain, you end up on stage. Well, they didn't know this, but they were just getting and trying to find a late drink. It was about 11 o'clock. So suddenly Daniel Kitchen was on stage sitting on a stall delivering an Edinburgh preview. A woman appeared on stage next to him out of the blue. The guy, obviously had seen through the curtain and thought, forget it, I'm not going in there. But she had all this confidence and I was at the back and she came on stage, just appeared next to him. And Daniel said, can I help you? Which was, which is great, it's typically Daniel Kitson. And she said, what's happening? He said, I'm doing a comedy show. And she said, I'm a performance poet. Can I do one of my poems? And there was a whole thing broke out. She tried to do a poem, the audience booed. Then she physically grabbed the microphone and Daniel Kitson had to try and wrestle it back from her. It was most bizarre. It's but what I'm saying is, as a compare, I didn't intervene because you look at the act and think if the act's in control, that's another thing as a compare. If you're pretty certain the act's in control and it's going as planned, well, not as planned, but they're dealing with themselves, that you don't intervene because that would be patronizing to the act. So if you see an act on stage and somebody jumps on stage, you will see what's happening. And if that act is dealing with it their own way and it's not out of control, you think, let that act deal with it, they're a professional. But if literally two guys jumped up and literally tried to attack an act, I'd get up there instantly because that's gone beyond the level and I'm the MC and so I'm gonna have to get up there and do something. But you do obviously use your discretion when you're a compere as to whether to intervene at any point according to what you can see is happening. Yeah. So really you have to expect the unexpected and the, yeah. unpredict and the unpredictable. It, it's very, it's, I did a gig with Roger Monkhouse once in, in Bristol, which is, and he's a great guy, Roger, fantastic comedian. Uh, he's a great guy as well. But it was the Hen and Chickens in Bristol. I used to be the resident compere there for a year or two, a long time back. And he was doing, uh, they used to run with an opening 30 minute set because some clubs run with obviously different numbers of acts. So they had an opening 30 minute set and a closing 40 minute set. But obviously most clubs tend to have an opening 20 or opening 25. But it wasn't just that, Roger had looked at his watch this is, I found this out in retrospect. And obviously, if it's 22 or it's 10-2, if you glance at it quickly, you can mix them up in your head. So he didn't have a dig digital watch. It was a normal watch, hands on the watch. He looked at it, glanced at it, and in his mind, he thought he'd gone at, uh, on at 10 to 8. Sorry, at 20 to 8, and he'd gone on at 10 to 8, for example, what is what had happened or whatever. But I didn't know any of this till afterwards. So he was doing 30 minutes. I introduced him. I was outside. In this occasion, I was outside making a phone call. And suddenly I heard all this noise and then like applause and then silence. And I thought, and I looked at my watch and it was 21 minutes. I thought, what's happening? Went upstairs and he'd come off. <laughs> and they'd had called the break without me, which as a compare is a failure. If, if you ever, if you ever, a, a break is ever called without you calling it, it's, it's, like, it's like the worst thing that can happen to a compare. It's just strange, but you feel like this is the worst thing that can happen. I, I'm running this gig, I'm hosting it. Not running it, but I'm hosting it. I should be introducing the acts and the breaks. But it was Roger's fault. He, he said, I thought I'd done 30. He'd done 21 and come off. And the promoter said, it's not your fault, Jeff. He should have been on for another nine minutes. I know, you know, you, you, I know you'd have been here and ready to come back on, which I would have. But I still felt as if I'd done something wrong. And another gig I did in Luton, I was asked to introduce the headline act. 
and he was in a dressing room, which was up a very long flight of stairs, and he was on the phone, and I said to him, I'm going down now, and they said to me, Jeff, you need to go on now, and you can only do two minutes. He's got to be on after two minutes. And he was on the mobile phone to, I believe, his girlfriend. And I said to him, two minutes. And he said, yeah, I've got that. I said, two minutes, I'll introduce you. And it was a room where the lighting was so bright, you couldn't see anything. Everything was silhouettes, which means I couldn't see the side of the stage or the audience. I couldn't see anything apart from the silhouettes. So I did two minutes and introduced him, walked off, and he wasn't there. And then what's interesting about psychology is that I'd had a good night as the compare. And when I came back on, they booed me, which is an interesting psychology because it was me and not him, even though I had done well that night and they'd liked me. Because I said, your headline act so-and-so with a big thing, and they applauded and walked off, and then I walked back on. They booed. And I said, hang on, guys. I said, hold on. I said, he's not there. But to make it worse, as I was saying he's not there, he suddenly appeared and tried to walk on, which made it look as if he had been there, but he hadn't been there. So when I didn't want him to come on, he did. Because when I was wanting to have time to explain that he wasn't there and I was looking for him, and he's now ready, he walked on while I was saying that. So they thought he obviously was there, and he wasn't. Yes, that wasn't real time. Was that a double? I won't name the acting question, but he made a right mess of that. He really did make a mess of it. He wasn't there when I needed him, and then he walked on and interrupted me, and I was trying to get the thing back, the, the audience straight before I did introduce him again. He walked on halfway through, so he did make a complete mess of that. I won't name the person in question, but I know it was. But uh, but that can happen to any contest. So that can happen to anyone. And this, Jeff, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. And thank oh, you, no worries. Thank, thank you for your time and imparting some of your knowledge and experience on yeah. you know what it takes to be an MC. And um, so yeah. thank you very much, Jeff. That's oh, it's, I mean, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I, 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 I know that you've got lots of things happening and shows that are running and all sorts of things going on and, and uh, how much you do for, for comedy and what you're doing, you know, especially for newer people, newer comics who will, who will go on, without a doubt, to become, you know, I'm sure some of them, as we know, we don't know how many, but some will no doubt come, go on to become very, you know, accomplished and, and professional comics. So, you know, it's, it's really an important, you know, the grassroots and people like me, you know, started at grassroots. We all did. Everybody, of course, everybody started off doing five minutes in a small venue or doing a first comparing show in a small venue. And it's great to have the opportunities. But thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Jeff, thank you very much. And thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks very much for having me. This has been a podcast recording, The Whole Lot of Comedy.